What a joy to be with you and singing wonderful hymns to our wonderful King. Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 25. Would you please stand? Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 25 through 3 1. Here's the word of the Lord I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and your minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Oh, indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Oh, therefore, I'm the more eager to send him again, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what's lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would be working in us, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Help me. Help me to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful. We all stand before you as beggars. And you tell us that we who are evil give good gifts to our children. How much more you who is all eternally perfectly good will not give us a new measure of the Spirit to give us understanding and comprehension of your word. So help us, we ask you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I have a question. Who here listens or watches or reads the news throughout the week? Anybody here? Don't lie. I know some of you and you're not raising your hands. (laughs) I know that many here, a little bit, yeah. Many here check the news. Read the news, some a little bit, others a lot. It doesn't matter how much. The question is, how much joy do you get from the news? (laughs) Once you are done listening, reading, watching, how often do you leave saying, wow, I was edified. My joy in the Lord just enlarged to a whole nother level. 
Isn't that amazing? It's like drugs. You know that's bad for you. You keep going to that thing. <laughs> and the, the news are not only depressing, but a lot of the news, the content of the news is about depression. So, this week I was going through some of recent news articles. Washington Post. A third of Americans now show signs of clinical anxiety or depression. BBC News. So it's not only here in the U.S. As an article. Depression doubles during coronavirus pandemic. New York Times. Is everybody doing okay? Let's ask social media. And it's fascinating because they have a, a, a program called Hedonometer. Hedonism, hidden, pleasure, hedonometer. And this hedonometer was created to measure word choices, so word choices, across millions of tweets every day. So it keeps checking all the words that you put in the Twitter to see if people are happy or sad. And they said that the saddest day of the year was May 31st. May 31st has been not only the saddest day of the year, but the saddest day in the history of this hedonometer. And I went to see what took place May 31st. And according to my notes, we were gathering together, worshiping the Lord with much joy and zeal at Alder's Gate. <laughs> that was the saddest day for many people. There is more. Americans report the lowest rates of life satisfaction this year in over a decade, including during 2008 and the recession. You see, lack of satisfaction. The Atlantic published an article saying, Is everybody depressed? Suddenly, many people meet the criteria for clinical depression. Oh, doctors are scrambling to determine who needs urgent intervention and who is simply the new normal. And the clinical depression. So who defines what depression is? And what is clinical depression? Who is the authority who determines when it's clinical? No longer sin. It just needs some meds, some drugs. And it's fascinating because all around us, we are bombarded with the ideology that we must look to ourselves. Look within. You are so awesome. You are so good. Or, look to the state. Look to the government. And they will make you happy. They will provide all that you need for you to be happy. And what happens? Lack of satisfaction. The problem is looking within and to the governing authorities leave us empty-handed, hopeless, under the weight of our own unrighteousness. 
Therefore, people are more and more discontent and dissatisfied, which means lack of joy. And for us Christians, let us not think that, hey, that's just the people out there. Because I talk to many of you, and I know how some of us here can be tempted to be dragged, dragged into this ocean of dissatisfaction. As we watch our society, as we behold our culture, shifting gears, becoming more and more heinous, the intrusion of the government in areas that God never gave them the jurisdiction, the hostility towards all sorts of biblical ethics, it can become tempting for us to start looking down instead of looking up to the Lord. And we must be reminded as Christians, as Christians, God prohibits us from lacking joy. He prohibits us from not rejoicing in Him. It's not like God just winks His eye, I understand, I understand, yeah. No. He commands us, Old and New Testament, to rejoice in Him. And today, by God's grace and mercy, we have two ropes pulling our necks. We just sang, we sang in the first hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore. And it says, lift us to the joy divine, we are singing. And the Lord is doing that with us. He has two ropes to lift our necks and our eyes to Him so we can rejoice. And the two ropes, these two merciful chains, is... Philippians 3.1 Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And also, under His sovereign providence, we have Christmas season. And it doesn't matter if you celebrate or not. The, the, the thing is, it's real. It's here. It's all over us, the Christmas season. And the Christmas is to remind the Christian of the joy that we have in Christ. So, God has been very merciful to us today in giving us the Word and then His providence with Christmas to remind us that we have no excuse to be lacking in joy, to not be rejoicing. Amen? So, Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. And I'll give more introductory material next Lord's Day. But for now, suffice to say that Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's nothing strange in the latter. Paul has been hitting this key note of joy and rejoice throughout the latter. So it's nothing new in the latter. That's important. It's flowing. It's woven into the fabric of the latter. But here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We are going to be looking at verse 1 of chapter 3. And then we have the question, the what... And that means to rejoice. The mood of the verb. And my grammar teacher here, what is the mood of the verb? I asked the kids yesterday and they didn't know. And the moods you have indicative, subjunctive, and imperative. So we're going to be looking at the mood of the verb here because it's important. It's not indicative. And it's not subjunctive. It's an imperative. 
then you're going to be looking at the how, the who, and the, the why. So, that's how my small brain works. And that's how I was able to outline this verse. And I hope it helps. So, let's go to the what. So, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And I have heard all sorts of silly jokes from people saying, Oh, do you see Paul? Paul is giving the divine authorization for preachers to say finally and then keep preaching for another hour. I have heard this. And that just shows that people have no idea about Greek grammar. Okay? That's not what Paul is doing here. The finally, this finally that Paul used, it's not indicating the end of the letter. It's a particle of transition in this context. It's not indicating the end, but the transition of themes. And that's exactly what Paul does here, and he does in other letters. He says, we translate as finally, but a better translation is well then, furthermore. Not that he's bringing the end of the letter. I have heard people say, yeah. Oh, there was this little kid in the church, and he asked his dad, Dad, what does the pastor mean by finally? And the dad replies, absolutely nothing. That's not what's taking place here. The finally is better as a furthermore, well then. Because he's going to transition to another topic, starting verse 2. Beware of the false teachers. Beware of the dogs. And that's what Paul does through all his letter. And you can see, uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, and you can see with your own eyes. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Oh, yes, and I will rejoice. And now there is a, a shift here in gears, and he starts moving to a new topic. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Even if, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. And now he moves to a new paragraph in the letter. Chapter 3, verse 1, the same thing. Finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. And then he moves to a different paragraph in the letter. And then you can see in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he moves to a new paragraph in the letter. So that's what Paul is doing here. It's not a finally of ending, but of transition. Okay? So the idea here is, Paul is saying, in light of the fact that it has been granted, it has been graced to you, that, he, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. In light of the fact that Jesus humbled Himself, conquered, received the name that's above all names, in light of the fact that I rejoice as I'm being poured out as a drink offering, in light of the fact that Timothy is coming, that Epaphroditus is there, oh, well then, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's what Paul is doing here. So we come to the verb, rejoice in the Lord. And 
What does rejoice mean? It means rejoice. <laughs> be glad. To be delighted. And it's deeply connected to being satisfied and content. The idea of rejoicing and joy is to satisfaction, contentment. One scholar writes, In both Old Testament and New Testament, joy is consistently the mark both individually of the believer and corporately of the church. It's a quality and not only an emotion grounded upon God Himself and indeed derived from Him which characterized the Christian's life on earth and also anticipates eschatologically the joy of being with Christ forever in the kingdom of heaven. And I would say that an understanding of joy and rejoicing is vital in the life of the church. It's vital. If you don't understand, you're going to be disobeying the Lord and you're going to be living in sin. So we must understand what is joy? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And first of all, let's start with the negative. What is not? First of all, joy and rejoicing is not a personal trait or a character trait that you are born with. Okay? That's very important. Biblical joy is not just being a happy, upbeat, smiley person. That's very important. Because I have seen people who were upbeat, outgoing, chipper, but when the storm came, they start freaking out and show no satisfaction in the Lord. In the same manner, I have seen people who are very serious, sober-minded, and yet deeply satisfied in the Lord. And when you are in a bad situation, if you had to choose between the two, the one who is always chipper, always smiling, always laughing, always cracking a joke, or the one who is very serious, not cranky, serious, you choose that person because you know that he will hold your hand and sing praises to the king in the midst of the storm. So it's important for us to remember that doesn't mean that joy does not affect our emotions. It affects. But primarily, it's a state of contentment. Also, Biblical joy does not mean that when the doctor tells you that you have a cancer in your brain, when you lose a, a, a spouse, when you lose a parent, when you lose a baby, when you lose a job, when you're falsely accused of things, that doesn't mean that you start smiling and laughing. That doesn't mean biblical joy. I cannot see Paul and Silas being beaten in jail smiling because of the pain that they were carrying the body. But we know that they were singing praises to the Lord. And sometimes we rejoice with tears. So when we collect the biblical data of joy, 
I would define Christian joy as a supernatural disposition and conviction that God is with and for you. Biblical joy is a supernatural. Why supernatural? It has to be given by God. You have to be born from above. You've got to have the Holy Spirit in you. So it's a supernatural disposition and conviction that God is with and for you. And the supernatural disposition and conviction enables you to be content, satisfied, and empowers you to keep marching and serving despite the external adversities. A beautiful hymn we were singing earlier. Joyful, joyful we adore. And it says, ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of the strife. Joyful music, lead us sunward in the triumph song of life. In the midst of the strife and the pain and the sorrow, that joy keeps us moving, marching, singing to the Lord. Amen? So for the Christian to rejoice and be joyful means that God's presence within us empowers us to keep looking to Christ Jesus, to keep serving the church, to continue striving side by side, keep away from grumbling and murmuring, keep away from complaining, and keep away from looking only to our own interests in the midst of sorrow and pain. That's biblical joy. Rejoice in the Lord. And I think we need to have a, a, a deeper understanding of the Scriptures about joy. The problem is, many Christians know a verse here and there about joy, right? So, most of us have a, a verse here and there that we remember about joy. Verses like Nehemiah 8.10, For this day is holy unto the Lord. For the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. Or weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. Psalm 118, 24. This is the day, the day that the Lord has made. Let us what? Rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. So we know a verse here and there. But if I ask you, alright, put this verse in the context of the Bible. Put this verse in the whole story of the Bible. Because a verse out of context will not help you. Will not secure you. It's not going to be an anchor for your soul. Especially during the Christmas season, we hear and sing a lot about joy. Christmas cards. Beautiful Christmas cards. And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of what? Great joy! But a verse here and there will not be an anchor for your soul. When a scholar says, Rejoicing in the Lord requires, of course, after being regenerated, requires that one be formed to, per to perceive things in a very particular way. Ways that run counter to the conventional patterns of perception. Further, it would appear then that rejoicing is not something that Christians will simply do as a matter of course. 
Instead, it results from a disciplined formation of our ways of thinking and acting in the world. Meaning, we must have our minds formed, transformed by the Word of God. First, you understand and you start exercising biblical joy. So, as we think about, let's think about the Bible. Okay? Oh, here's the verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Where is Paul getting this from? Where is Paul getting this? Calling the Christians to rejoice. You see, there is a theology of joy. This is one book, a beautiful book, in which themes run through the whole scope of the Bible. So if I were to ask you, where does joy begin? Where does joy begin? What would you answer? In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, should we trace to Genesis or should we trace to eternity? Huh. Where does joy begin? But with the Trinity. Right? Joy begins in the Trinity. The three persons find their ultimate satisfaction and contentment in each other. Father, Son, and Spirit. A joyful trinity. They don't need anything else. God's never discontent. Lacking joy. So, that's very important. Our triune God is a joyful God. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. So, from the beginning... We can think in eternity, God is a joyful God. Huh. So when He makes Adam and Eve, now we can move to Genesis. Adam and Eve were the only people besides Christ, the only men and women and women who had fullness of joy. Before the coming of Christ. They are made in God's image. And they reflect that joyful union of the Trinity. There was a joyful relationship between Adam and Eve. And there was a joyful relationship between Adam and Eve and the Lord. They rejoice in each other. But then what happens to Adam and Eve? Genesis chapter 3. What happens? Sin, the fall. What does the fall bring? Frustration, sadness. And that's what we see. That's what sin is. Sin brings the lack of joy, destroying their relationship. So as we as we as we are thinking about Joy through all these scriptures. As we go back to the beginning, and as we study, we see the joy. I think I have here. The joy that we have, the rejoicing, is grounded in two factors. God's presence and God's power on our behalf. That, that's 
to understand why Paul can demand from David, demand from Hannah, demand from Kent, rejoice, is because of these two factors. God's presence and God's power to save on our behalf. That's what, you walk through the, the Old and New Testament and you see, joy through all the Scriptures is inseparable from the presence and the salvation of God, who He is and what He does. So let me just give you some examples here. Splendor and majesty are before Him. First Chronicles 16, 27. Strength and joy are where? In His place, His presence. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, joy related to the presence of God. That's why Adam and Eve, they had this perfect joy with, with God. But also we see that joy is the result of God's power on our behalf in saving His people. So throughout the Old Testament we see one example. There are many examples, but one example is Second, Second Chronicles 20. And that's the context of war and battle. Look at verse 27. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. Why? For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So joy is connected to God's presence and God's power on behalf of His people. Another example, Luke chapter 10. Remember, Jesus sent the, the disciples to go, and now they return to Jesus and says, And the seventy-two return with what? Why are they joyful? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Meaning, God's power on their behalf. And look what Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And just here you have presence, being with God, and power, saving them. The joy of the Lord was grounded in the fact that He was dwelling with His people. There was the tabernacle, there was the temple, and you read the Psalms, the joy of going to the temple. Why? God is there. God is there. The God of all joy dwelt in a temple that brought joy to His people. Also rejoicing in the fact that God is delivering His people. But, what happens to Adam and Eve once they sin? Do they remain in the garden? Do Adam and Eve remain in the garden? No. What happens? Exile. Exile. God kicks them out of the garden. Think about as the story of the Bible is developing. And you think about the nation of Israel. God makes them, and, and the picture is just like God was making Adam and Eve. He's creating Israel out of a dead womb, Sarah's. Just like Adam, the God who speaks life out of death. 
And He makes the nation of Israel and He gets into a covenant with them. The groom is with the bride. It's supposed to be joy. But what happens with Israel? They sin. They start seeking satisfaction in other gods, in other places. They start rejoicing in other things. And what does God do to Israel? The northern kingdom is taken by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom is taken by whom? The Babylonians. We have the Babylonian exile. And what happens with the exile is no more joy to the people. They're out of the the dwelling with God. They have been conquered. So, for example... We read in Lamentations 5.15. Lamentations 5.15. The joy of our hearts... Remember what Lamentations is about. The book of Lamentations. During the exile, the Babylonians came. Jeremiah is writing this as he's lamenting what's taking place. And he says, The joy of our hearts has ceased. The dancing has been turned into a morning. Why? No more temple. No more victory. No more power of God on their behalf. Exile. Away from God's presence. Therefore, no longer joy. And there are many other passages I won't read. But we see how sin is lack of satisfaction. Sin is lack of joy and contentment in the Lord. Sin promises joy outside the Lord. Sin sin deceives you to believe that you can rejoice on something else besides the Creator and Savior. Leading to sorrow, depression, anxiety, discontentment. And lastly, to exile. But God, who is rich in mercy, He promises. He promises His people that He will, He will come once again. He will dwell with His people once again. He will Show His power on behalf of His people once again. And He will restore their joy. Isn't that what the prophets speak about? That there will be a new covenant. There will be joy. God will deliver us. So we see many prophecies in the Old Testament of God telling His people that a new covenant will be made. And the joy will be restored. So, for example, Jeremiah 31. I don't know if I have there. Yes, Jeremiah 31, 12 through 13. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, and the oil. All the products of Israel. And over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a water garden. What is the water garden but a symbol of Eden? Restoration of joy. And they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be married. Do you remember? That's the opposite of Jeremiah said that was taking place in Lamentations. But he's looking ahead to the day when God would come and Rescue them. Or Isaiah chapter 35. 
Oh, and the ransom of the Lord. Who, who is the ransom of the Lord? The redeemed of the Lord. His people. Yes, shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sigh shall flee away. So you see that the prophets under God's power, inspiration, they see a time that's coming when God will dwell with His people again. Remember, presence and power. And we rescue them. He will show His power on their behalf. And then what happens? Presence, power equals joy. Rejoicing in the Lord. One of the most beautiful prophecies is the one that we always hear on Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9. We always hear, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. We all know that, but do you know the context? Do you know the context of that passage? The context is about God coming to rescue His people from exile. Those who are in darkness now have seen a great light. God's coming to rescue them. And then what happens? It says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Oh, here's why they're rejoicing. Here's why there's so much joy. For the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He starts explaining why people are rejoicing and so joyful because of the work of the Lord in saving them, rescuing them, and now dwelling with them. But then the Babylonian exile ends, right? And that's why you have the post-exilic writings. What is post-exilic? After the exile. So you have, for example, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther. And then you can go to the prophets, the post-exilic prophets. You have Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai. And you see that even though there was a small restoration of joy because now they're back in the land, the temple is being rebuilt, yet they know that 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 is not the fullness of joy promised by God Himself. Amen? And, And that's the context that we always hear, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What is the context? Do you even know where that passage is? You should know because I said earlier, Nehemiah chapter 8. What's happening in Nehemiah chapter 8? You need to think. To understand the theme of joy through all the Scriptures. They return to the land. Yes! God has delivered them from the Persians. They're back in the land. They're rebuilding the walls, the temple. That's why... Now they can have the joy of the Lord once again. But even that joy is very weak compared to the joy that God promised. And that's why, for example, in Zechariah, 
I have here Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah says, and remember, Zechariah is back in the land. The temple is being rebuilt. The walls, they have been delivered from the Persians. And yet, Zechariah says, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst. War, salvation, and dwelling. Presence. That's all we see here. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and we will again choose Jerusalem. You see how they see the, the prophets speak of a new day, a greater salvation. Therefore, greater joy. Now, when you come to the Gospels, you understand why, writing the birth of Christ, there is so much emphasis upon what? Joy. Why so much emphasis in the birth of Christ? The fulfillment of all those expectations in the Old Testament. That God would come, dwell with His people, save His people. A better Redeemer would come. So we have in the birth of Christ. That's why, right in the beginning of the Gospel, first book of our New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, when, referring to the wise men, remember the wise men who come from the east, I preached about them last year. I strongly believe that they were saved. That's why they're seeking the Lord. They had heard the good news because there were Jews who were dispersed through that area. Daniel, for example, was in that area. And they served in the palace of the king. So they heard that the news from this Messianic Jew who'd come, this king from the Jews who'd come. And now we have the nations coming to see the Messiah, and what do they do? Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. And when the wise men from the east saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Why? Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples rejoice. The Gentiles now, know that the Savior has come. No wonder the angel announcing the birth of Jesus declares, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. All the expectation from the Old Testament, beginning in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, the breaking of joy and rejoicing, now finds its fulfillment with the coming of Christ. How do we call the account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. How do we call that in the Bible? The Gospel. The Gospel's account. Right? And what is the Gospel? What, is, what, what, what does it mean? Gospel. William Tyndale, when he was translating, he says, that's the glad, the joyful news. 
It's news of great joy. That's what the Gospel is. And we see joy in abundance in Jesus' life. Even when He's about to die, He speaks about joy. And He tells His disciples that He's leaving His joy with them. John chapter 15. And how does He leave His joy with the disciples? The Holy Spirit. He sends His Spirit to come and empower them. So the Lord Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit in order for His joy to abide in us. That's why Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit of Christ in the new covenant people is what? Joy. Joy. So the presence and work of Christ are the grounds for our unshakable and eternal joy. He's present with and He's fighting for us. So one scholar says, Joy is not so much a spontaneous emotion as a response formed in those who can read the economy of God's activity in particular ways and are able to act in conformity with the unfolding story. Joy is the appropriate response when one rightly perceives the unfolding of God's drama of salvation, even in the midst of suffering and opposition. You see, it's only when Rick, only when Rebecca, comprehend this beautiful, joyful story of salvation, and that God has dragged us into this story, to this drama. And we see the unfolding of God's purpose in order for us to have joy. That we can say, yes, I have a joy that cannot be departed. Because now under the new covenant, God has come, He has saved me, and He has sent His own Spirit to dwell within me. Unless the Holy Spirit is taken from you, what's impossible under the new covenant, you cannot have the joy of the Lord removed from you. Amen? So, let's move on. The mood of the verb. Finally, my brothers, oh, I hope that you rejoice. Is that what he says? Maybe you will rejoice. The verb is in the imperative. It's a command. As Christians, we are commanded to rejoice and be glad to find our excitement and satisfaction in the Lord. So it's not a, a, an option. It's not a nice advice. It's not a, okay, counsel. It's a command. God commands us. Look at chapter 4 of Philippians. We will get there sometime soon. But look at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And it's as if God knows that some of you will say, Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. You have no idea where I am in life. You have no idea what I'm going through. 
So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, be quiet. The Lord says, I will say, rejoice. Meaning, you have no excuse. We are not wiser than God. We don't know more than God. And Paul is actually just following the example of his master. Because Jesus commanded his people to rejoice. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 through 12. Do you want to be blessed by the Lord? Who wants to be blessed by the Lord? Hallelujah, we all do. Look how Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Look at what he commands us. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Paul is not creating something new. He's just following. If you go back to the Old Testament, rejoice in the Lord. There is a command there also. Sing to the Lord a new song. Find your joy in the Lord. And that's what Paul is doing, imitating his master, Jesus. And the reason why they command us to rejoice is because God has shown us grace. That's very important. Let me ask you. Are you a vessel of God's grace? Are you a vessel of God's saving grace? I am, and I hope most of you are, a vessel of God's grace. That's very important. Because if God has shown you grace, therefore you have what it takes to rejoice and be joyful. And we can see that even through the Word itself. It's fascinating because the words for joy, hara, and rejoice, that's the verb form, haro, hairo, derive from the same root, har. And the Greek word for grace, haris. So grace, haris, joy, hara, rejoice, hairo. And you see the root, har, har. There is a very close connection between the two concepts. Those who have experienced God's grace, they can continue to celebrate the Christian life as a festival of joy, in perfect freedom from all anxieties, worries, and fears, because we have received grace. So, there is the imperative. Rejoice in the Lord. So, what happens... If Abby, I can see that Abby is not rejoicing in the Lord. I can see that there is a lack of joy in the Lord. And I come to her and I remind her of this. Abby, rejoice in the Lord. You don't know what I'm going through. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not about me. That's about the Lord. It's a command from Him. So many issues, so many problems in the church, in marriage, is because 
people are not rejoicing in the Lord. So many issues and problems is because people are not finding their satisfaction, their contentment in God's presence and power within them. And people get offended if you say, you better rejoice in the Lord, brother. God dwells within you. He conquered the grave on your behalf. And now you're trying to find joy somewhere else? And people get offended. Or we pay a bunch of money in books and different sections when it's right here. And that we should be helping each other. Danny, are you rejoicing the Lord, brother? Guga, is your joy in the Lord right now? Grumbling, murmuring, arguing, complaining, discontentment, not serving, not encouraging, being self-centered, not giving, are clear signs that joy is missing in our lives. Amen? Often dissatisfied, often, often grumbling, often arguing. If you are marked by these type of things, maybe you need to... As Paul says, examine your salvation. If you are marked by being a sour person, a grumbler, a murmurer, maybe it could be that the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. And the Lord needs to save you and rescue you from yourself. And let us remember that the man who is telling us to rejoice here Do you remember where Paul is? Where is Paul right now? Oh man, I I just saw a video this week. I'm not kidding. Talking about dungeon and prison. I saw a video of a, a prisoner in the U.S. I don't know how he has his phone in prison. And he's able to record his meal. And he sent to his aunt... Telling his aunt to post all over the place because he had applesauce and some fake ham for lunch. And he's complaining that that's what they're giving to him as a meal. Applesauce in his pan. That's the prison system in America. That guy has a phone recording and complaining. Should not even be eating. Let people bring you food just back in the day. That's what Paul needed. People, Paul needed people to bring him something to survive. This man is in chains. Suffering. It's no Joe Olsteen with a big smile living, living in America telling, Be happy. There's a man in chains telling the church to rejoice. And then the how. How are we to rejoice? Paul says, in the Lord. In the Lord. The foundation of the Christian joy is not primarily our circumstance or situation, but a union with Jesus. In the Lord refers to the object of our rejoicing and the source of this joy. So because of our union with the Lord Jesus, 
We ought to have the triune God as the object of our rejoicing. And that's amazing. There is a, a paradox here, the, the Christian paradox. Because rejoice in the Lord. See, it's very narrow. Well, wait a second. Are you saying I can only rejoice in the Lord? You see how narrow it is? Narrow-minded? Are you telling me I can only rejoice in the Lord? So at first it seems very narrow-minded, right? But look at the paradox. How broad it is. Jesus Christ. It's infinitely broad because Jesus is infinitely good, infinitely gracious, infinitely perfect, infinitely worthy of all excitement. So you have this paradox that's narrow, it's only in Jesus, but at the same time it's so broad, infinitely broad, because you have all the perfections in Christ. So you see people looking for joy and satisfaction in all sorts of things. A new job, a new house, a new car. Oh, when I get that new car, then I'll be joyful. When I get that new job, oh, then I will rejoice. More stuff, children, grandchildren, spouse, politics. And you can gather all these things together and they will not give you joy. But on the other hand, if you have Christ, you have infinitely amount of joy to sustain you through all eternity. So, rejoice in the Lord. And in the Lord means that when you are suffering because of Christ, you also ought to rejoice because it's in the Lord. So, for example, we read in Acts 5.41, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, meaning Christ. Huh. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor because of their union with Christ. And I don't think they were smiling here, jumping around, laughing, no. But there was that conviction within them that they could hold hands and gather together and sing praises to the Lord, knowing that even though they had been beaten with rods, their backs were wide open with wounds and blood, and yet they rejoice because God is moving things forward. They are part of this drama of salvation that God placed them there. About Hebrews, that's a passage that we all need to take heed. Hebrews 10, 32-34 But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And look at that. Brothers and sisters. Circle this. Because it's coming to America. Circle this because it's coming to America. It's here. Let me prepare you. It's here. When you joyfully accept the plundering of your property. People losing business because of their faith. Losing properties because of Christ. And what are you going to do? 
grumble, complain. The Bible tells us rejoice. Rejoice. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Hmm. If the government has the power to remove your joy, then whether if you're whether if you're in Christ or not, then we need to question. If the government has the power to remove your joy, then you need to ask yourself, "Am I in Christ?" And let me ask you: When you read these verses here, what are the excuses coming to your mind to defend yourself against this? Because I know that some of you here, that, yeah, I know, so many here, read these verses, and instead of saying, Lord, make me like that, it's I'm in America, we have the Constitution, we have the right. Isn't that true? I need to fight. They're not Americans. They don't know what a country is. Silly New Testament people. I know some of you here are thinking exactly that. I don't need to rejoice. I just need to get my guns. Oh, brothers and sisters. How we need to be crushed by the Word of God. Formed, molded, transformed. To understand true Christianity. True Christianity. Let me behold the foolishness of the gospel here, because that's crazy. That's madness. The man who is in jail, the man who is in prison, the man who is in chains, is telling the people who are free to do what? Rejoice. Should be the opposite. The people who are free should be the ones telling Paul, Paul, rejoice for a little while, please. It's the opposite. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel enables us to see life from a different angle. Because we have been seated with Christ, and now we can see life from a different angle. And that's why brothers and sisters in North Korea, Nigeria, Iraq, Afghanistan, they can tell us, rejoice in the Lord, brothers, to us in America. We think that we have the freedom. And they're saying, rejoice in the Lord. Just like here. And the who? Let's move fast here. Who? Who must rejoice? Finally, what? My brothers. My brothers. The only people who have the power to rejoice, the only people who have true joy, are those who belong to the family of God. That's very important. Only those who belong to Jesus can rejoice. They're empowered to rejoice. That's why I said that joy is a supernatural response and disposition. Only those who are born of the Spirit have the power to rejoice. John Newton has a wonderful hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, and he says, Solid, solid joys and lasting treasures None but Zion's children know. And notice that Paul doesn't say, a few of my brothers, some of my brothers. He says, my brothers. Do you know why? 
Because a joyful life is not the privilege of just a small number of people in the kingdom of God. That's very important, brothers and sisters. A joyful life, a life that's satisfied in Christ alone, is not the privilege of elders, pastors. A minority is the obligation of every single Christian. Are you possessed by the Spirit of Christ? Are you possessed by the Spirit of Christ? Therefore, rejoice. You have joy in you. Ah, let's move on. Why? That's the last part of verse 1. Look at Paul says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. And this, we're going to see more next Lord's Day, but it could refer to the call to rejoice or it could be a reference to the call to watch out for the false teachers. And I believe it's both. Paul keeps repeating himself. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible is always repeating the same song. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And it's fast, it's, you think about the power of sin. It's so real. That you think that God would not need to call us to rejoice in Him. But the remaining sin in us is so powerful that God does not remind us once, but over and over again to find our joy in Him. And he says the reason why the Bible keeps repeating the command and the exhortation for Christians to be joyful and rejoice in the Lord is because Paul says it's safe for you. It's a safeguard. The Greek word means... That which brings stability and firmness. So the remind for Christians to rejoice in the Lord is God's tool to keep us tight, stable. Because pretty soon, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel. And that's, so we need to be reminded. Rejoice in the Lord. The reminder to rejoice in the Lord is security for us. It protects the church. It keeps the church members stable, firm. Members who lack stability, dependence, firmness in the church are those who have not been rejoicing the Lord. Protects us from bad witness also. Think about that. Have you ever met a person who professed to be a Christian, but he is the the most bitter, sour, joyless person you have met. I have seen people like that. They profess to be Christians, but they have no joy, bitterness, always grumbling, always murmuring, always complaining, never serving. Let me tell you, that's heresy through actions. That's heresy through actions. A lot of times you think that heresy is just teaching false doctrines. But living a perverted gospel is heresy too. And that's why we need to keep being reminded that the gospel is the glad tidings that Christ is in us. So, Paul keeps reminding the church, and he will do again. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Why? It's safe. It brings stability to the church. 
We need that. So, we see here this beautiful command. It's a joyful duty that we have. For me, it's mind-blowing. You have this joyful duty, this joyful commandment from the Lord to rejoice in Him. That's amazing. Find all your joy in me. Rejoice in me. Find all your excitement and satisfaction in me. And you will be happy. So finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now we know why God commands us to rejoice. His presence and His power. And let me tell you, when God came to rescue you from your sins, He came with a troop, armies of mercies in your life. He's not stingy. He came with troops of mercies in your life to rescue you. The Lord, Creator, Sustainer, King of the, the universe, is so gracious you call us, Rejoice in me. Find your satisfaction in me. I have provided all that you need. I'm within you. I'm for you. Who can be against you? So we have absolutely no excuse to be immersed in despair, anxiety, depression. Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife, Joyful music, lead us sunward in the triumph song of life. Think about the salvation that we have in the Lord, brothers and sisters. The Lord came. The God of the universe was made to become a man, a baby. Come out of the womb as an infant. Have you ever held a baby? And you got to hold the little head that is all bubbly. You got to be careful how they eat. That's God, the sustainer, creator. Humble himself in order to be present with us and in order to show his power on our behalf and save us from our sins. Psalm 98, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation. The Lord has made known His salvation. Then He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. How can we not sing with joy? His right hand, His holy arm, has worked salvation on our behalf. Rescuing us from ourselves, from hell, from the wrath to come. And now He dwells within us. How can we not rejoice in Him? And if you are not in Christ today, today is the day of mercy. God is showing you mercy. He's showing 
what joy is and where joy can be found. So, run to Him. Run to the Father. Oh, that beautiful, beautiful parable of the prodigal son. The son is running, and how is the father? Is the father bitter? His arms are wide open. He runs with joy to meet the lost. And we are told that in heaven there is great joy when a sinner humbles himself and throws himself at the feet of Christ. Today is the day to find true joy. Oh Lord, how we thank You. How we love You. Your right arm and Your holy arm has indeed performed a wonderful, a wonderful work of salvation, Lord. You dwell within us and You are for us. Presence and power. Grace. That's why we must we must rejoice. And that's why the Gospel is the joyful news that God has accomplished what no man could do. So help us. Help us to rejoice in You, Lord, this season and forevermore. Especially these days, Lord. Drag our hearts to the cross. Remind us Psalm 98. Sing a new song to the Lord. For He has done wonderful, marvelous things for us. His right arm, His holy arm has worked salvation on our behalf. Oh Lord, thank You for rescuing us. Thank You for saving us from a joyless, depressing, horrible life. Lord, I remember, so many people here remember how horrible, how joyless, how depressing life was without You, Lord. So thank You. Thank You for Your holy arm and Your right hand rescuing us and placing us into this joyful drama of salvation. Oh, glory be to Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.